lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel. Well, good evening, everyone. This is Rabbi Mel. I'm back, and um, I hope you had a good week. It was a very exciting week in America, you know, with the debates, and for our Jewish listeners and me, there was Yom Kippur yesterday, the holiest day on the Jewish calendar, and I was going to talk about that, but I decided I'm going to save that. I want to talk about hurricanes tonight. Last week... Hurricane Matthew came to visit us, started in Haiti and uh, came, came across the street to the United States. And as of today, and I'm looking at CNN uh, right now online, um, the death toll climbed to 21 as of um, this past Monday. North Carolina reporting 11 deaths, Florida reporting four, and three each in South Carolina and Georgia. And of course, the president declared major disaster in North Carolina, and he ordered federal aid and money and whatever else they needed. Uh, and I'm looking, as I'm looking at CNN's report, on Hurricane Matthew, I'm seeing there are still such unbelievable power outages. First of all, the floods. Uh, you've seen the pictures of the floods and, and the damage. And, you know, uh, what do you do when you go through a trauma? I'm going to talk about tonight that tonight. But, for example, there are 500,000 structures in North Carolina that didn't have power this as of this past Monday. That's a million power, a million people without power. It's 10% of the population of North Carolina. It was just unbelievable, the damage that was wreaked. Trees came down, power lines came down. And in Florida, there were still 170,000 customers without power on, on Monday. And they had to postpone voter, voter registration day, a deadline, a day, because not everybody could get out of their houses. What do you do? It's terrible. The Kennedy Space Center was closed. Can you imagine the place where we fly to the moon and space was closed down because of flooding? It was just horrible. And there's still... Uh, people who are missing uh, in North Carolina and other places. It's, it's just, you can't believe it. I mean, it's just so hard to, to believe that stuff still happens. Uh, you know, we've spent a lot, a lot of time, a lot of years talking about climate change. And, and yeah, and that's part of it. That's a big part of it. But I want to talk about it from a trauma standpoint. 
because this show is about loss and healing. So I want to share with you some words from a sermon, actually, that was preached in Boca, Raton, Florida, right after the hurricane hit. This was a week ago Saturday, our Sabbath, Shabbat. And the preacher is Jack Reamer, Rabbi Jack Reamer, who's a colleague and friend of mine. And he has some very fruitful insights where he tries to make some sense out of what went on in that hurricane. So I'm going to read a lot of his stuff and I'm going to share my own contributions as I always do. And we'll see if we can move forward and try to understand better. And the reason I'm dealing with trauma is because, well, you'll see. So he starts and he says, what a week this has been. I don't know about you, but for the fast, last few days, I have been on an emotional roller coaster. I'm glued to the television set day after day, hour after hour. And I listen anxiously to every bit of news and to every single rumor that came to us from the reporters and the meteorologists. First, they told us the storm would land near Miami. Then they said it would land somewhere in Broward County, which is north of Miami. Then they said it would turn east and go out into the ocean. Then they said it would turn west and go inland. Then I got a call from another synagogue saying they were canceling their Sabbath, their Shabbat services there for the first time in their history. And then late on Thursday night, the storm finally came. And then on Friday morning, it left. It's really unbelievable to me that such damage was done, you know, in half a day. It's going to take these people months, some of them years, to rebuild. Here in Colorado, several years ago, we had flood damage, which, which came to us from forest fires. And we're still working on rebuilding. Some of the homes are still damaged. It's going to take a while uh, down south before they rebuild. Right now, it seems to be over, at least for those of us who live in this part of Florida, he says. And therefore, I think that we came to services this morning with mixed feelings in our hearts. On the one hand, we felt relief that our homes and lives have been spared and that Hurricane Matthew missed us. And on the other hand, we felt pain and empathy in our hearts for all the people in Haiti and in the Bahamas and in Cuba, and for all the people who live north of us where the hurricane struck with such cruelty. We feel for the more than 850 people who had died in Haiti alone. And we feel for all the people, both south and north of us, whose homes have been destroyed and whose trees have come crashing down onto their streets and who have suffered so much devastation. The truth is that most of us here in Boca Raton came out fairly well. Some of us lost power for a few hours, and some of us have an awful lot of debris to clean away. Some of us lost some food, which spoiled when the electricity for our freezers went off. But most of us escaped with relatively little damage certainly compared to what the people who live south and north of us received. There, south and north of us, he says, the wind and the water broke through their windows and went into their homes, and it smashed and spoiled their furniture, and it broke their hearts. 
And therefore, we've come to our synagogue this morning feeling relaxed and relieved, whereas they will come into their synagogues if and when they can get to them, feeling exhausted and weary and sick at heart. And I imagine that when the people who live in those areas that, were, that suffer the worst damage are able to go back to services if and when that time arrives, I imagine that they will be asking themselves three questions. The first one is, how could this have happened to us so quickly and so cruelly? How could our lives have been turned around overnight? How could we have gone from being so high to being cast down so low in such a short time? And is this a punishment, which I'll talk about later? Is God punishing us for the sins that we have committed and this is the punishment. Well, I'll just tell you right now that my answer is no, but I'll explain in more depth later. And I imagine, says Rabbi Reamer, that they will be asking themselves a second question. When they look around and see the mud and the muck and the debris that fills their homes, when they look around and see the paintings that they brought back from their big trip to Europe are now waterlogged, when they see the pictures of their grandchildren's bar and bat mitzvahs, and when they see the pictures of their wedding, and when they see the samovar that their grandparents brought over from Europe, now lying on the floor in pieces, and when they see the knickknacks and the tchotchkes that they have treasured all these years, now lying on the ground, they ask, must be asking themselves a, quest, a second question, which is, how can we put a price on these treasures? And how can any insurance policy begin to cover the sentimental worth that these things have to do with us? And how can these precious objects now all be gone with the wind? And the third question that must be in the hearts of people in Jacksonville and in Juneau Beach and in many other cities north and south of us, the question that they are probably not ready to think about yet, but that they will soon be is, what do we do now? And I imagine they must be asking themselves, is there any wisdom, is there any guidance within our Jewish tradition that can help us get through this dark and dismal moment in our lives. And so these are the questions that I want to deal with with you this evening. What do you do when your life changes overnight and you go from being on the heights to being in the depths of despair? And what do you do when the things that you value the most disappear overnight and you are left feeling bereft and bewildered and confused. And what do you do when the storm passes and you look at your broken business and your shattered house and you wonder, now what should I do? So I would add at this point that in a certain degree, loss is loss, whether um, Bubby dies of Alzheimer's or uh, uh, you're walking in the streets and a bus comes and has got your name on it, 
or the powers of nature come and destroy your homes and all the things that you have loved and built up and pictures and things that you have bought and all the rest. So loss, loss is no different really at the end of the day, whether it's a person or not a person. We've talked about pet loss. I know how bad we feel when our pets die. Well, when the pictures of our weddings are unusable anymore, a little bit of us dies as well. So, let me get back to his comments. The first thing that I want to say to these people is that you are not alone in your distress. You should know that calamities and catastrophes come upon all of us at some time in our lives. And they often come upon us with very little advance warning, just as this one did to you. Let me give you just three random examples of this law of life. Now, before I read this sermon, I hadn't thought about it, but he's right. The first example is a man who lived in the White House in the early 1990s. His name was George Herbert Walker Bush. Bush number one, as we say. In September of 1992, George Herbert Walker Bush was one of the most popular men in America. The war that he led over Iraq had gone wonderfully. He drove Iraq out of Kuwait less than three weeks and with very, Ameri very few American casualties. And so he was a hero to us all. The economy was booming and the market was high. And as a result, his approval rating was over 73% in September, 1992. And then, some unknown governor of Arkansas, a man named Bill Clinton, whom nobody had ever heard of before, came out of nowhere and defeated him in the election in November. And I can picture him sitting in the White House the morning after the election and saying to himself, how could this have happened? How could my life have turned around so fast? How could I have gone from being with one of the most popular presidents in all of American history, to losing the election? How could I have gone from a 71% approval rating to a 42% approval rating in such a short time? He must have felt like a hurricane had hit him. And in a very real sense, I suppose he was right. And he's not the only one to whom something like this has happened. I think of three brothers whom I know who live in Toronto. You may have heard of them, the Reichman brothers. If ever there was a family with a fitting name, it was this family, because Reichman in Yiddish means rich man. And these three brothers were rich beyond anyone's wildest imaginations. They were billionaires. They owned the Park Avenue atrium in New York. They owned the Arco Tower in Dallas. They owned the Exchange Square in Boston. They owned dozens of other companies in Cape Town and in London and in Buenos Aires and in Rio and Paris and in Berlin and many other places all around the world. And one, uh, one year later, one year later, the Reichmans filed for bankruptcy. 
Their company was called Olympia and York. And so the initials of their company on the big board were O-Y. But today, O-Y no longer stands for Olympia and York. Today it stands for Oi, as in Oi Vey. And if you know what that means, you know what that means. If you don't know what it means, you figure it out. Oi, oi, oi. I'm sure that the Reichmans are in the synagogue today because they go every day of their lives. But I'm sure that they must be thinking to themselves as they pray to God. How did this happen? How did our lives change so much so fast? I'm sure that the Reichmans must feel today as if a hurricane has hit them. And in a very real sense, it has. So these are two of the three examples. We'll go to the third example uh, after the break in a minute or so. But just to reiterate, you know, loss is loss. You go through the pain of the physical loss, then you have to deal with the ramifications that come with that physical loss. What am I going to do now? Am I going to stay here? Am I going to leave? Am I going to rebuild? Am I going to let the insurance company pay me for it? What's going to happen? I'll give you the third example, and then we'll talk a little bit about God after the break. Stick around. I'll be right back. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Rabbi Mel's back. Uh, we're talking about trauma. We're talking about Hurricane Matthew. 
and the ramifications of that hurricane and what that means about trauma in general. And I'm sharing with you some of the remarks made by Rabbi Jack Reamer, who's in Boca Raton, Florida, right in the middle of where the hurricane struck down in Florida. And he was saying that, you know, things like this, sudden things, sudden losses happen all the time. And he gave some examples of the first President Bush, who one day was so popular and the next day Bill Clinton uh, beat him for the presidency. And what do you do? You know, one day you're sitting in the Oval Office in the, in the White House in your chair, in your presidential chair, and the next day you've got a month to go and then you're out. Second example was from the Reichman brothers, very wealthy. And then one day they went bankrupt and so it's like a trauma hit them. They were billionaires. And then one day they were nothing. So he continues in his remarks. Let me give you just one last example of someone whose life was turned around in a short time. Do you remember the Soviet astronaut who held the record for being up in outer space for the longest time? I don't remember his name, but at the time he was world famous, for he was up in space for 318 days. And at that time, this was the world's record for the most time ever spent by any human being in outer space. The story is told that while he was up there, the Soviet Union collapsed. So when he came down, this was the conversation that I suspect went on at the dinner table that night in his house. He must have said to his wife, darling, it is so good to be back home again in Leningrad. And she said to him, darling, we no longer call it Leningrad. Now it's called St. Petersburg. And he must have said to her, really? How can that be? Wasn't Lenin the father of communism? And she must have said to him, darling, there is no more communism. And he must have said to her, what? How could Gorbachev have let this happen? And she must have said to him, darling, there is no more Gorbachev. And he must have said to her, do you mean to tell me that Yeltsin is now in charge of the Soviet Union? And she must have said to him, darling, there is no more Soviet Union. And he must have said to her, I think I'm having a Malox moment. And she must have said to him, I'm sorry, but we don't have any Malox in the house. And I call the drugstore and they say they are completely out of them too. And he must have said to her, new, I guess there are some things that never change. Now this is made up, but it's funny. But it's traumatic at the same time. The man's up in space for less than a year. He's away from the, the real world and the world changes. And he comes back. He has no idea what's going on. I feel for that astronaut. Really, I do. Because he went up from one world and he came down into another. And he must have felt as if he had been hit by a hurricane when he learned how many things had changed on Earth while he was up in the atmosphere. So in a very real sense, he was in the atmosphere and he suffered trauma when he came down. And so if your life has been turned around by this hurricane, you may take comfort from the fact that the same thing has happened that happened to you, happened to George Bush, 
to Gorbachev, to the Reichman brothers, to lots of other people. Perhaps there is some comfort in knowing that. You're not the only one who has suffered from the loss that comes through trauma. And I'm sure that there are many other people whom you and I know and are listening to me now who can tell you that they may have been hit this year by a medical hurricane or by a business hurricane or by a family hurricane that came upon them with no advance notice and with no warning. I have a friend in St. Louis who felt fine in every way, but his wife made him go for a checkup because he always beat her at tennis. And that day he lost and he lost badly. And he, it wasn't because he let her win on purpose. And she noticed some other changes that seemed to be going on in him that he himself did not notice. And so she suspected that something was up. So she insisted that he go to the doctors and take a test. Let me ask the men who are listening to me, to me what do you do when your wife insists you do something? You do what she tells you to do, right? Because she's your wife. She knows better than you do. They know better than we. We all married up. We should tell them every single day. Should wake up in the morning and say, darling, I love you. I married up. And we'll get a hug and a kiss. And that's a good way to start the day. And just so to humor her, he went to the doctor. Just to humor her. He didn't think anything was wrong with him, but she said there was. So he went to the doctor. He took a cardiogram or an MRI or an X-ray or whatever it is they give you those days. And the next day he was in the hospital being prepped for heart surgery. So there you go. Uh, Jack Reamer then tells a joke. He says, by the way, they took an MRI of my brain recently and they found nothing there. Which reminds me of a story from 1934, I think it was when Dizzy Dean was pitching for the St. Louis Cardinals in the National League. I think it was the National League. And he pitched to a hitter, and the hitter um, hit the ball with such force that it went right back at Dizzy's head and hit him in the head, and he fell down, and he uh, passed out. So they took Dizzy Dean to the hospital, And they do all kinds of tests. And the next day, the headline in the St. Louis Gazette newspaper was, Dizzy Dean's brain shows nothing. I'll let you preach the sermon about that. But in this case, they took my friend straight from the doctor's office to the hospital. They got him ready for surgery. One minute he had a pocket calendar in his pocket with a list of all the important meetings that he had to go to that week. And the next minute, all those meetings were forgotten. One minute he had a pocket calendar in his pocket that told him where he was supposed to be every hour. And the next minute he was wearing one of those stupid gowns they give you in the hospital that allows you no dignity at all and that has no room for your pocket calendar or anything else. When you go in a few moments from the world in which your meetings are so important, To a world in which they are no longer important at all, that is a kind of a hurricane of a sort, isn't it? And when your business is going well and one day customer, one key customer changes his mind and decides to buy from someone else, all of a sudden with no notice, 
and all of a sudden your profit and loss statement only has losses on it, that too must feel like a hurricane, doesn't it? And I'm sure that there are some people who are listening to me here right now who've had that experience during this last year. Again, loss is not just of a human being. It's about anything that you had that you no longer have. And so the lesson that I think that all of us need to learn from Hurricane Matthew is that not only the possessions that we value the most can be gone with the wind, but more important that even our lives are not in our control. Our lives are not in our control. That is why we recite special prayer during the High Holy Days in the Jewish community throughout the world. It's called Unatana Tokef. And in that prayer, we say the magical words, Mi yichyeu, mi yamut, who will live and who will die in the coming year, in order that we may realize, in order that we may realize and not forget that our lives are not in our control. In order that we may realize, realize and not forget that even our permanent possessions are not as permanent as we think they are. How do we come to terms with this truth that our lives and our possessions are not in our control? Rabbi Reamer continues, let me offer you several suggestions. The first lesson I learned from what happened in our homes in the hours of last Wednesday and Thursday before the hurricane arrived. Did this happen in your house too? I think the newscasters probably made it sound even worse than it actually was. So all day, Wednesday and all day Thursday, we kept getting phone calls. They came from all over the country. The phone kept ringing off the hook with people calling to tell us that they were worried about us and asking us if we were safe and wanting to know whether we were going to evacuate our homes or not. And then when the storm was over, we got calls from people all over the country expressing their relief that we were safe. Did you get those calls too? If so, did you notice who they came from? Did you notice that they did not come from your customers or from your clients or from your competitors? They did not come from your business associates or from your casual acquaintances. They came from your siblings and from your nieces and your nephews and from your very closest friends. What I learned from that and what I hope that I will remember and never forget, and what I hope that you learned and that is from that as well, is that the people who care about us the most are not the people whom we buy things from, and they are not the people that we sell things to. They are the people whom we are bound up with in bonds of family and in bonds of friendship. And if that is true, which I believe it is, then I have to ask you, why do we spend so much time of our, uh, of our lives, of our time, and so much of our energy worrying about our businesses, and why do we not spend more of our times and more of our energy on those whom we love, on those who love us? Because when the chips are down and when we are in trouble, these are the people who will come through for us. I learned and relearned over that 
week-long period when the hurricanes were around, that family comes first, and I hope that you did too. I hope that you learned this lesson from the people who called you on Wednesday and Thursday, and I hope that you will remember this lesson from now on. And now I want to tell you the three lessons that I learned about how we should feel towards our property, and then I will almost be done. One lesson is about how we should feel towards our property while we still have it. One lesson is about how we should feel towards our property when we lose it. And the third is a lesson in what we should do and how we should live after a disaster strikes. One of these lessons I learned from what happened to my blue blazer, Rabbi Reamer says. One of these lessons I learned from Elizabeth Taylor, may she rest in peace. And one of these lessons I learned from something that happened on the opposite end of this country. First, let me tell you the story of my blue blazer. And everybody's got a story like this. I believe that the advice of the Jewish tradition is that if you have something beautiful to wear, or if you have something someplace beautiful to visit that you have not gone to, or if you have some experience that you intend to have one of these days, then you should just get over it, which means you should use it while you have it, that you should enjoy it while you can, that you should not put off any pleasure that comes your way until tomorrow, because no one, no one, no one owns tomorrow. I learned that truth from my blue blazer. This is the story. When we got married, my wife bought me a blue blazer as a gift. I don't know how much it cost, but I suspect she spent a lot of money on it. It was beautiful. It had gold buttons along the sides, and it fit me just right. A few months later, the synagogue that I served had its annual donor dinner, and I was tempted to wear my blue blazer for this event. I took it out of the closet, and I started to put it on, but then I said to myself, no, this affair is not really important enough to justify wearing this blue blazer. I'm going to save it for something more special than this. I'm going to save it for a really, really special event. So I took my blue blazer off and I put it back in the closet and put on something else. Six months later, the synagogue had another affair. This was a testimonial dinner in honor of the synagogue president who was going out of office and I liked him. We worked together very well and so I was tempted to wear my blue blazer. I went in the closet, I took it out and then I said, no, I don't think so. It's gonna be a nice affair, but it's not that special enough to justify wearing my blue blazer. I'm going to save my blue blazer. This went on for years until finally, finally, there came an occasion that I thought was special enough to justify wearing my, not new anymore, my blue blazer. I decided for that event, it would be the right time to wear my blue blazer. So I took it out of the closet and you know what? Can you guess? Of course, my blue blazer never, it didn't fit. It no longer fit. I couldn't even button it. I don't know how to explain it. Well, we know how to explain it, Rabbi Reamer. One of two things happened. Either it shrunk or or else I gained weight. Either way, I couldn't button it. And so even though it had beautiful gold buttons on both sides, I had to put it away and wear something else. So let me tell you that the lesson of Hurricane Matthew is 
that if you have a jacket like that or if you have a dress like that that you've been saving for a special occasion or if you have a cruise that you've been dreaming of taking someday or if you've been thinking of taking your grandchildren on a trip one of these days and if you've been postponing wearing this blazer or wearing this dress or going on this trip until the time is right, well, let the first lesson of Hurricane Matthew be to wear it now, to use it now, to enjoy it now, to stop messing around because tomorrow it may not be here, because tomorrow you may not be here. Tomorrow a hurricane may come into your life and take it away. So use it now for nobody owns tomorrow. One more quick lesson. Elizabeth Taylor's home was broken into and robbers stole her jewelry, which was very expensive. And I remember the reporters asked her, did you cry for your jewelry when you found out that it was gone? You're not going to believe what she said. Sure answer was, I don't cry for things that won't cry for me. It's as simple and as basic as that. Things are only things, and money is only money. That's what the governor kept saying when he told us in Florida would evacuate our homes if necessary, because things can be replaced, but lives cannot. And that's what Elizabeth Taylor was teaching us that day when she lost her jewelry. Things are only things. And if they won't cry for you when you are gone, then you should not cry for them when they are gone. Well, that's the second example. I have one more example that I will share with you. It comes not from here in Florida, but from the Pacific Northwest. We're going to take a little break, and I will be right back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. 
That's griefok.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hi, everyone. Mel Glazer, Rabbi Mel, is back with you. And I we're talking about Hurricane Matthew that happened a few weeks ago and lessons that we learned from loss from trauma. And I've been talking about uh, certain lessons. Um, I'm quoting some words from my rabbi and teacher, Rabbi Jack Reamer, who was in Boca Raton, which is right smack dab in the middle of where the hurricane came down. So he's given us a couple of examples of, of what how people dealt with loss. And I want to give you one more example. The Pacific Northwest is about as far as you can get from Florida. We are on the southeast tip of the United States. They are on the northwest tip. Yet I want to bring you a lesson that comes from there. It's a lesson in what you should do after life knocks you down. So that if that has happened to you this week or this year, if you fear that it could happen to you sometime in the new year, then listen to this story. I have a friend who lives in the state of Washington. That is where Mount St. Helens is located. Mount St. Helens is the place where a volcano erupted some years ago. Tons of lava spewed out of Mount St. Helens and choked the lake and the land around it. It poisoned the vegetation on all sides. It filled the area with mud and muck and mess. And the experts said that nothing would ever grow there again. My friend visited that area this week and he told me that the lake is still polluted and that the roads are still full of dust and debris and that you have to drive carefully because there are still fallen trees on the roads. But he told me that if you look carefully, you can see that things are beginning to grow again. If you look carefully, you can see that little by little grass is beginning to emerge from between the crevices. He told me that if you look at this area carefully, you will see that life is beginning to return out of death. You will see that hope and vegetation are beginning to emerge out of destruction. You will see that somehow, some way, from somewhere, I don't know how to explain it, but he says you can see it, Mount St. Helens is beginning to come back to life again. And therefore, my prayer, he says, for all the people who live north and south of us, my prayer for the people of Haiti and Nassau and Cuba, and my prayer for the people of Fort Pierce and Jacksonville, and all the other places where homes have been smashed and businesses have been destroyed is, if that could happen in the Northwest, then perhaps it can happen here too. Perhaps in the hovels of Haiti, perhaps in the havoc that is Fort Pierce, perhaps elsewhere as well, if they are determined enough and if we are generous enough to help them, who knows? Perhaps life can start over again here just as it did there. Let the last word as we enter the new year come from the cartoonist Ziggy. Ziggy is Rabbi Reamer's favorite cartoonist, and he says, I have a dream of someday doing a new edition of the prayer book that we use for the high holidays with cartoons by Ziggy as the commentary. Who knows? Perhaps one of these days I'll do it. But meanwhile, here's my favorite Ziggy cartoon. Ziggy has a cartoon that says, if I had to do it all over again, then I would do it all over again. He says, the new year has begun in a scary way for many of us in the state in which we live. 
But this is my wish for you, me, and all those whom we love. For everyone, let this, let us begin this new year with courage in our hearts. And may God be with us on our journey. Fine comments from my friend Rabbi Jack Reamer. And his prayer at the end of his sermon leads me to talk about God. Because there are lots of people who ask me, and I'm nowhere near the hurricane. Uh, is this God's work? As poets who wrote many prayers in our prayer book said, God is in charge. And I quoted you one of the prayers that we say on the high holidays that says, who shall live and who shall die? Who shall be rich and who shall be poor? It's all there. So people want to know, am I supposed to believe that? Is God really in charge of everything that happens in the world and in me? Is my life, am I just a puppet on the chain that God controls? Am I Pinocchio? Well, I'm telling you that the God that I believe in does not act that way. And I will share with you a Kabbalistic commentary. Kabbalah was written hundreds of years ago. It's, it's um, mysticism. And this particular comment goes like this. When God created the world, the whole world was full of God's glory. And literally full. Everything was full of God's glory. And that's the good news. The bad news is, that when everything in the world is filled with God's glory, there is literally no physical space for us men and women to act. There's no place. There's no place because the world is filled with God's glory. So God knew that we had to be free. God knew that he had to give us free choice. He had to give us free will. He had to let us make our own decisions about how our lives are going to look. And the way he did that was he scrunched himself up. You know, when you're a little kid and you scrunch up, you know, and you make yourself smaller. Well, that's what God did. God scrunched himself up almost into a ball, as it were, because this is a commentary. We don't, God doesn't look like anything, according to our tradition. But he scrunched himself up, up into a ball. What did that accomplish? That gave us free will. Now we make the decisions that determine what our lives are going to look like, not God. So when you say that God gave us free will, you know, that's, that's good and it's not so good at the same time. It's good because Mount St. Helens is beginning to come alive again. It's bad because the forces of nature, the laws of nature which God gave us, they work like they're supposed to work, and sometimes it means that there are hurricanes, and sometimes it means that there are forest fires. And God gave us free will to be the kind of people that we want to be. Freedom of will, free choice. You can be anybody you want. And that's why you can become an Adolf Hitler, 
or you can become a Mother Teresa who is now Saint Teresa. But as Pope Francis says, nobody's ever going to call her that. They're going to always call her Mother Teresa because she was our mother. Now, so they both had the choice, the free choice, of becoming who they became. Hitler decided to become a tyrant. Mother Teresa decided to become a saint. And I'll tell you a secret that you may or may not know. Early on in her career of taking care of the poorest of the poor, she lost her faith in God and in Jesus. She recounts that in her diaries that were only released after her death, that she went to her priest, her father confessor, and she confessed her sin. You know, she went in front of him. He couldn't see her, but she couldn't see him. And she said, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. And he said, what is your sin? And she says, I've given up all hope. There's just too much hunger. There's too much poverty. People take advantage. Rich people take advantage of the poor. Bad people come and steal our food. And sometimes I wonder why I do the work that I do. I'm not sure I believe in God anymore. And I know it's a sin to say that. And so for that sin, I ask God's forgiveness and penitence. Wow. When I read that, I was stunned. Mother Teresa, the saint now, early on in her career, not later on, early on, she lost her faith. She thought, if there's a God in the world, what's he doing for us? Why does he make people hungry and homeless and hopeless? Well, of course, nobody knows the answer to that except there is free will. Well, it's interesting that she went to her priest. She confessed that she was losing her belief in God and in Jesus to protect her and her people. And she didn't know what to do. She was going to. She was thinking seriously of um, leaving her order and not being a nun any longer. So the priest, who was a very wise priest, said to her, keep doing your work, mother. Keep saving people. Keep doing the best you can. And one day your faith will come back to you. Your actions are more important than your faith. God will understand. Which I thought was a wonderful, wonderful, compassionate answer. So she did. She went back and for another 20 years, she fed the poor and she found them housing and she did what she did. The point is, that God gave Mother Teresa free will to be who she was and to do the things that she did to save the world. Just as Mother Teresa gave Adolf Hitler free will to become a tyrant, uh, a ruler with uh, no heart. 
us being given free will and laws of nature um, means that bad things are going to happen sometimes. Some people are going to die of cancer because that's the way the body works. God's not going to come in and zap the cancer. Doctors have power. They can do more than they ever could before. But no doctor can eliminate all of cancer. We pray that the day will come. But we have free will. Our bodies work like they're intended to work. So there you are. So trauma points to the issue of theodicy. That is, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, when Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote his book, which is called When Bad Things Happen to Good People, everybody thought that the title of his book was Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. So he talked to uh, his fellow rabbis, myself included, and one of us asked him the question, why didn't you uh, name the book? Why didn't you title the book Why Bad Things Happen to Good People? He said, because my answer wouldn't have sold books. My answer is because they do. Bad things happen to good people because they do. Publishers are not going to publish a book with three words in it. So that's why my book is called When, What Do You Do When Bad Things Happen to Good People? So there you are. God gives us the freedom, and that's a mixed blessing. And we have to live with it. And we have to live with what comes with our being free. God gave us the laws of nature. God gave us the laws of morality. When you do something good, you feel good. When you do something bad, you feel awful. And you know I'm right in your heart. God gives us what I call the laws of history, which means we're on a journey back to the Garden of Eden, wandering through history, We're not just wandering haphazardly. We are wandering with a direction with where we want to go. We want to end up back in the Garden of Eden in the perfect world. The perfect world. That's what history is all about. God gives us the freedom to make the right decisions, and I hope we do. It's time to go. I will be back with you next week. And we will delve even deeper into loss, grief, and healing. Peace, my friends. Till next time. Bye-bye. Thank you again for joining Rabbi Mel Glazer for From Morning to Morning. Please tune in again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're wishing you strength and hope in the next week.